0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning, Bethany. Glad that you can be with us as we worship together here in the sanctuary, also online and also across the street. It's good to be together, and I think we'll just change the sermon to Psalm 51.7, which reads, wash me, I will be whiter than snow, because you'll all understand exactly what that's about. But in seriousness, uh, what we're looking at this morning is actually part two of the sermon you didn't hear last week. So if you missed it, it's online. Uh, Romans 14 and 15 uh, very much uh, are tied together. So I hope you'll take a moment and listen to that uh, sometime this week so that we can become the people that God desires that we be, people who are displaying visibly Uh, the love and unifying power of Christ. So let's take a moment, we'll pray together and we'll look at the scriptures. Thank you, Father, that we have the privilege of gathering together within these walls today to listen for your voice. We trust and pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Father, that we'd be receptive to what you have to give to us and that you would shape our hearts, Father, not just our minds but our hearts in order that we might live differently and, and better display your heart of love for all the world. We pray this in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. Undeniably, one of the pressing issues of our day is the issue of division. We live in a hyper-divided culture. We see it uh, in many, many ways, and it's written about a great deal now in uh, the news cycle uh, with which we are all familiar. We see political divisions, economic divisions between rich and poor, racial divisions between black and white, uh, divisions between those who are in the country and those who are outside the country as we deal with the divisions regarding philosophy of immigration. There are religious divisions, of course, and then within each religion, there are also doctrinal divisions. So uh, Muslims are not united around Islam. Christians are not united around Christianity. Catholics, obviously, in this morning's news, are not united around doctrines of Catholicism. We're divided, 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 and the question on the table at a level is, why are we so divided? Why are we so tribal? We're so lonely that one senator has written a book entitled, "Them." Subtitle Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. And he says in this book, Loneliness is Killing Us, citing that in the, in, in the, the last year there were 115,000 deaths by either suicide or uh, drug overdoses, both of which can be traced to this chronic uh, pathology of loneliness that is a pandemic. In our culture, So sociologically, our world is looking for something to bring us together. In the world of physics, physicists are also looking for what is called the unity principle. What holds the universe together? And so sociologists are looking for unity. Physicists are looking for unity. And we're sitting on a massive truth. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says this. Christ holds all things together. And so if we're sitting on a source of unity, and yet we ourselves are arguing with one another, objectifying one another, dividing uh, against one another, we have to change that so that we can become people displaying the heart of God, the unifying power of Christ. And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning, is this principle of unity. So we'll be looking at three aspects of what I call the unity principle. The principle that Christ is the unifying force in all the universe. That's what we want to consider this morning. And this really, as I already articulated, is a continuation of what I discussed last week in Romans chapter 14. And it really was the reason that Paul wrote the book of Romans. Paul wrote Romans because uh, Jews were moving back to Rome, and they'd come to Christ, and they wanted to be in the family of faith. With so you have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and to be blunt, they're living their lives in very different ways. The Jews have certain dietary restrictions; they're worshiping on certain days. The Gentiles have other other ideas, and so you have uh, in in one community under the umbrella of Christ, people living very differently. And they're at danger, actually, of dividing over this. And Paul is writing this letter to say Christ is not, should never, ever be a source of division. Christ is always intended in God's economy to be the force that unites all people. So that's... Where Paul has been leading, and he really comes to the crux of the matter in Romans fourteen and fifteen, when he talks about this unity principle. So three aspects of unity principle we see this morning: number one, the fruit of the principle; number two, the root of the principle; number three, the display of the principle. Right? Fruit, root, display. Those are the important things this morning. So let's look at this together. Beginning with this, looking at the unity principle, being with the fruit of the principle. I understand uh, this uniting principle, unity in Christ, extends radically to all people. So in Romans chapter 15, verses one and two, Paul is taking the principles of, of chapter 14 and now moving and expanding them in chapter 15. In chapter 14, Paul was talking about helping believers get along with one another, right? So he's saying, look, uh, you drink wine, You don't. You go to R-rated movies, you don't. You think you can lose your salvation, you don't. You speak in tongues, you don't. You voted for Trump, you didn't. And here's all Paul is saying. Stop arguing. Get along because no matter what divides you, what more profoundly holds you together is the fact that you share Christ and that should be enough to lead to a visible display of unity. That's the deal. So he's saying in chapter 14, get along with each other. And then in chapter 15, he expands the principle, and he says this, verse uh, 1, we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And each one of us are called to please our neighbor for his good to edification. So as soon as he uses the word neighbor here, he's now expanding the unity principle saying, look, you're not just called to visible unity within the body of Christ, but you're called to love all people. Watch this, even if they never believe you love, why? Because you understand what they don't yet understand, which is Christ loves everyone. And so you now, as the prince of Christ, you love everyone. So that's kind of the unifying principle And Jesus taught this. And one of the ways that he taught it was so profound uh, is when uh, someone asked, hey, what do I have to do to be part of the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, hey, what are all the commands? How are all the commands? If you boil down the gospel, and and you like to use a cooking term, you made a reduction. You boil everything away that's extraneous. All that's left is what? Two things. Love God and horizontally what? Love your? Say it again. Love your? Yeah, you're supposed to love your neighbor. That's it. Love God, love your neighbor. And then the religious experts who were listening to this, I mean, loving an argument at a level, they were like this. Yeah, whatever, who's my neighbor? In other words, we have to define now neighbor. So Jesus tells a story to articulate who is the neighbor, and the story's come to be known as the parable of the good Samaritan. So watch this. Here's Jesus talking to a group of Jewish religious leaders. They love God. They know God. They know their Bible better than we do. And when they say, who's my neighbor, and what does it mean to love my neighbor, Jesus tells a story. This guy was beat up down on 2nd Avenue near Pioneer Square, and a pastor walked by, ignored him because he had to be at a meeting. And a seminary professor walked by and ignored him because he was afraid if he helped him, something might happen to him. And then a Samaritan walked by, saw him, called 911, stayed with him, went to the hospital with him, found out he was uninsured, said, I'll cover his bill, make sure you take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. And, and then Jesus says, which one proved to be a better what? neighbor? And of course the answer is obvious and the religious people couldn't even bring themselves to say it because I can't can't imagine that a Samaritan would do the right thing. Are you hearing me? So the question on the table just for a moment here is who's the Samaritan today? Like who's the person who's doing a better job of loving God than you are? And the answer is probably the person that you, ha- you think there's no way that they could embody the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there are people out there, not in here, who are loving one another better than we are. And that's the point of the Samaritan story. Look at the person who is least likely in your mind to embody the ethics of Jesus and see what you can learn from that person because we're called to love all people. Because the gospel has that kind of radical invitational nature to it. Most important observation, when you look at the whole ministry of Jesus and the whole trajectory of the, of the arc of the Bible, you come to see that this radical inclusivity of God's love is at the core of Jesus' calling and Jesus' message. Uh, exhibit A, when the angels showed up at the birth of Jesus. I bring you good news, great joy for who? All people, not the elect, not the Christians, not the Republicans or the Democrats, all people are the recipients of good news. Exhibit B, the people in Jesus' inner circle included polar opposites. He had blue collar and white collar. He had a Jewish zealot, and he he had people hated... Uh, by uh, people who hated Jewish zealots, right? He had he had a he had a tax collector. He had he had all kinds of different people. So uh, Jesus is radically inclusive in his inner circle. He had men. He had women. Uh, exhibit C. The charge by religious people that Jesus is investing in the wrong people precisely teaches us that Jesus loves all people. In other words, people said regarding Jesus, here's why we don't like you, because you're hanging out with people uh, who are not qualified and worthy of receiving your love. You're hanging out with tax collectors, Gentiles, sinners, and Jesus like this. Exactly. That's why I came. To love people who don't receive love so that I can show you how to do it. Exhibit D, the first evangelist by, is, is by all conventional wisdom three times unqualified for the role of declaring the, 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 the good news. Uh, when Jewish rabbis prayed in the first century, every morning they prayed a prayer, uh, God, I thank you that I'm neither a woman nor a Gentile. That was a prayer of a Jewish rabbi, every morning. So, of course, when Jesus uh, kind of anoints basically the first evangelist. Who is she? A Gentile, not just a Gentile, a Samaritan, like a hated Gentile. And a woman, and not just a Gentile and a woman, but a woman with five failed marriages who's now sleeping with a man, not her husband. And she has the pulpit when she goes home. As an evangelist saying, I've found the Messiah. Wow. Exhibit E, Paul's teaching. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says the goal of all history is the summing up of all things in Christ. I, Paul, here's Paul. I envision a universe with everything shot through with the glory of God. Exhibit F. Jesus speaks at the end. Revelation 25, uh, 21.5. Behold, I'm making all things new. That's Jesus. All things new. The summing up of all things in Christ. Good news, great joy for all people. Black, white. Rich, poor, gay, straight, Democrat, Republican, in, out, up, down, everyone. Radically inclusive. Man, this is practical. Let me tell you why. Uh, In my upbringing, one of the first lenses I was given as a Christian was uh, I was taught to look for differences between myself and the other. Does that make sense? So, internally I was like this oh you're a Christian Uh, well are you a Baptist or a Presbyterian and we used to argue about this in our home my uncle was a Presbyterian pastor and I I grew up in a Baptist home my uncle would come over for a meal we would talk about infant baptism how can you do that right? and he would try to explain it to me graciously and I was like it's wrong you're different. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so not not just internally, but of course beyond the circle of faith. I'd see someone. Oh, and as soon as I talked to him, saved or unsaved. Oh, unsaved. What kind of unsaved? Oh, uh, Mormon unsaved, atheist unsaved, agnostic unsaved, Hindu unsaved. I had a bin for everyone. Do you understand what I mean by that? Everyone's in a bin. And it's like, I could just talk to you for a little while and know the bin that makes you, not me, the other. And now here's Jesus coming to say, look, at the end of history, everything will be shot through with the glory of God. So why don't you begin to look at the world with with a different lens? Rather than approaching everyone by asking, how are we different? Let's start with how we're alike. Here you are. I don't even know your politics. I don't know... I don't know anything other than this, you're made in the image of God, I'm, in, I made, I'm made in the image of God, that's enough. That binds us together, not apart. You long for peace, you long for meaning, you long for hope, you long for justice, you long for mercy, so do I. We're together, not apart. We're alike, not different, that's the gospel. We have to start with this kind of radical unity that is articulated in the scriptures. So we began by asking not how are we different, but how are we the same? That's why Jesus is trying to teach us the fruit of the uniting principle extends to all people. Because no matter what you believe, you're made in the image of God. And because you're made in the image of God, I'm not just called to love you, I want to love you. That's the gospel. Fruit of the principle, it extends to all people. Second, the root of the principle... Like, where does this capacity to love the other come from? The root of the principle is Christ. In verses 3 and 4 of Romans 15, this is what we read. Having said, in verse 2, everyone is to please his neighbor and work for the edification of his neighbor. Verse 3, Paul says, even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So uh, Jesus is uh, saying in Psalm 69, look, I suffered because of love. Because I loved people, I suffered. I, I bore reproach, right? So it's very interesting here to see that after this calling toward loving all people, Paul quotes a Psalm that's all about suffering. And this is counter to our cultural notions of love. Did anybody in the room celebrate Valentine's Day this week? Anybody do anything special? Like a few hands went up, but not very many, interestingly. Um, and some wives are poking their husbands right now, too. We, ca- we, did, we celebrated, but not an, I, I, it wasn't a, there was no sentiment in it at all. Um, I, Donna took me to the doctor. Yeah. So I went in because I had an injury from running, and I need to check it out and see what I could do, and, and then we stopped and bought some food at the grocery store, and we went home and cooked dinner, and at Trader Joe's I said, see those flowers? Pretend I gave them to you. And then we walked on. <laughs> I thought, it's not very sentimental, right? So, as we, as we move from kind of initial romance in the early days to 40 years of marriage, one of the things that we've learned is that sentiment is good, romance is good, flowers are fine, all that stuff I get, yes, but the foundation of sustainable love doesn't reside there, actually. Foundations of love require suffering. That's why this is quoted here. Oh, you're called to love all people, like Jesus did. Oh, how did Jesus love? Well, uh, this is what he quotes. The reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. So we're called to care for the needs of others, but it's not a warm and fuzzy thing. Psalm 69 is this messianic psalm in which Christ is revealed as the one who suffers, but we're told here that it is not given so that we can say, wow, isn't it cool that Jesus suffered for me? And unfortunately, I'll pause right now and say that we've often been taught that that is the extent of the value of Christ's suffering, that Christ suffered for us so that we don't have to. Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. Uh, for at the right time, horror are still enemies. Christ what? Christ died, and here's the preposition, Christ died for us. Rarely will someone die for uh, even a good man. But for a good man, someone might, at some point, be willing to die. But while we were enemies, Christ died, and then the preposition, like all caps, 30-point font, Christ died for us, and we're, here's our response. Wow, isn't that great? Christ suffered for me, subtext, not in the Bible that we often apply, so now I, it means I don't have to suffer. I appropriate the suffering of Christ so that I'm exempt from suffering. Christ went to hell, I don't have to. Christ suffered, I don't have to. Wrong. Uh, actually when Paul wrote that in Romans 5, it, Paul anticipates then the question that such reasoning would lead to and he articulates the question in beginning of chapter 6 of Romans. Paul says, oh, Christ suffered so I don't have to? Well, then let's sin that grace might increase, right? Shall we just sin that grace might increase? Because look, if my ticket to heaven is assured and Christ suffered for me so that I don't have to suffer, why suffer? Why deny myself at all? And here's the thing. Christ didn't suffer for you so that you would be exempt from suffering. Paul articulates in Romans 6 that Christ suffered for you so that you could now be in relationship with Christ in a union. So that now you being united with Christ would become in this time, 2019, the presence of Christ in the world. And if Christ suffered, you suffer. If Christ loved his enemies, you loved your enemies. If Christ crossed social divides, you cross social divides. If Christ washed feet, you wash feet. If Christ denied himself, you deny yourself. If Christ led by serving, you lead by serving. That's Christianity. Not a stamp in your passport that gets you into the kingdom of heaven, but a radical union so that you now are the presence of Christ. Washing feet. Crossing social divides, loving your enemies, and laying down your life. That's our calling. And here's the problem. Uh, This is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you, my disciples, if you love one another. And if you love your enemies. That's the proving ground. Not your doctrinal statement. Your actual love. And Dostoevsky talks about this when he says, all of us in the room, Love the notion of love more than we love to love. And here's how he says it. I love this quote. He says, The more I love humanity in general, the less I love any person in particular. <laughs> Don't you love that? And this is what he says In my dreams, I often make plans for serving humanity. In my dreams, I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet, I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. So that within 24 hours, I begin to hate the very best person. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he's too long-winded. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they become close to me. So that I've learned that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity generically. This is a super practical dilemma. And the reason it so resonates with me is because uh, though I'm married, I live down here without my wife at least three nights most weeks, sometimes four, so... By virtue of our living situation, she's up in the mountains, I'm down here. Last night, tonight, tomorrow night, maybe Tuesday night, that's just the way it is. It's all kind of a part-time bachelor. And here's the thing. When I'm, when I'm down here, I have this, like, my, my fondness for my wife is through the, It's over the top. Does that make sense? Like I just totally love her when she's not with me. Like, I, I, I just can't, I can't, like I call, I FaceTime and it's all good and it's beautiful and, it, and there's a lot of sentiment in the conversation. I imagine being with her and I hug my pillow at night pretending it's her and all that stuff. It's all good, you know. And then I go home and, and the real wife is actually annoying. <laughs> like, just this last week, I found myself saying, I can't believe you think that way uh, on a particular issue. Like, I can't even fathom how anyone rational could think that way. And then we kind of get in this kind of argument, you know. And then I get in the car and come down here and I'm like, oh, my wife, she's just the best thing in the world. I I have a friend, in fact, uh, he was the director of Torchbearers, 27 Bible schools around the world. He traveled to all of them all the time. I was at a social gathering with Nina's wife once and I overheard a conversation. Someone said to my friend's wife, man, after 40 years, you guys are still so happy. What's the secret? And without even hesitating, she said travel. That's the secret. <laughs> like the fact that we're not always together kind of means that we romanticize things a little bit. But real love, that's a lot harder. Real, I mean, that's, it takes It takes sacrifice. That's the thing. And so, the great deception is that we think our views on issues reveal who we are or we think that our capacity to defend our beliefs reveal who we are. Jesus said, no, that doesn't reveal who you are. What reveals the true character, your true character is revealed by your relationships if you love one another. And so, if you're not loving your neighbor, here's Jesus Your your doctrinal statement is not that relevant to me. The proving ground of your faith is your relationships. So first, the fruit of the principle, it must extend to everyone. Think about that person you don't like. We'll do that at the end. Second, the root of the principle is Christ because Christ loved all people. Christ crossed social divides. You now, as the prince of Christ, are called to do the same. This is our calling as Bethany Community Church. Not to exclude by virtue of a perfectly defined doctrinal statement, but to radically love every person. Uh, Then, like, okay, if you buy into that, then how do you do that? And that brings me to the displays of the unity principle, verses 5 through 7. So I'll just read this very quickly. Now may the God uh, uh, who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ, so that with one accord you may w- with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So let just, we'll stop right there. There's two, there's two words that kind of rise to the top in the Greek language. The Greek word for endurance, the Greek word for hope. So in other words, what does this love look like? Well, first of all, it looks like endurance. What is, and uh, what, is, what does endurance mean? Endurance means uh, you. I mean, this is the nature of endurance. Some of your distance runners in the room, you know this. Endurance means you keep going when you want to quit. If you don't feel like quitting, then you don't need endurance. Does that make sense? And so uh, if you feel like quitting, that's actually good. Because it's at the moment you feel like quitting, that's when you have the opportunity to develop endurance. Um, I injured my, my knee running around Green Lake three weeks ago because I was eager to run the viaduct one last time and there was an offering, a chance to run the viaduct. So uh, never mind that I hadn't run for three months because I've been skiing. I went out, I ran, and I, tr- and I pressed, and I woke up the next morning, and my knee hurt, and then, and then I thought, oh, it's because I didn't run enough. Who thinks that way? And then, and then by Monday, it was really hard even to kind of walk, basically. And then I went to the doctor on Valentine's Day, et cetera. So, um, but the reason I tell you the story is because I really wanted to run on the Vida because... I'd run the uh, seafare race that runs on the viaduct many times, going all the way back to when I was a college student. And so uh, I, I'll never forget the first time I ran on the viaduct, and you're, it's the seafare race, and, the, and, and you're running uh, from the stadiums down to the Space Needle, and the sun is either having just set or it's setting, and you're, and you're running, and it's absolutely, there's nothing like it. And so I wanted to run one last time on the, but I couldn't. But I ended up then walking on the viaduct with my wife, and it was barely walking, because by that Saturday my knee had gotten worse. But I said, you know what, we're going to do this. We got to do it. We stopped at CVS and bought a cheap knee brace, and I kind of hobbled the whole kind of seven mile journey with my wife. It was for me super important. To, to do this run and here's why uh, we stopped halfway to let my knee heal and we ate a little bit of food and I said you know it's so poignant that I wanted to run this but now 40 years later I can't I'm limping I said this is just like a metaphor like we've been doing life for 40 years right, in a city we love and hobbling instead of running, it, it felt right. Does this make sense? Like we're still here, not as strong, not as certain, but still showing up, still showing up in marriage, still showing up in, in this thing that I do. Sometimes super enthusiastic, other times not so much. Still showing up, still showing up. And we looked at each other, there was tears in my eyes. This is love. This is what love does. Love keeps showing up. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is endurance. And Paul is saying here, look, if you want to follow the steps, uh, the steps of Christ, then you need endurance. Because Christ felt like quitting too. Read the thing, his prayer in the garden. If it's possible, I wouldn't. Re- I prefer not this cup. Like, when, when you run... The Seafarer race, or in the past when there was a viaduct, you run it. The last thing you do is you go through uh, the Batter Street Tunnel. It's the last thing. And by the time I would get in that tunnel, all the other runners had preceded me, and there was no more oxygen. It was, and it stunk like a gym in there, and and you hate it, and you go anyway. Because this is what endurance does. And then you come out and there's a beautiful st- space needle and you're like, oh, that's right. I love this city. I love these people. I love running. But three yards earlier, I wanted to quit. That's what Paul is saying. Love keeps going. You need endurance. In every relationship. You need it in marriage. You need it in friendships. You need it in church life. You need it in your calling. You're serving. You're using your gifts. You need it in generosity. You feel like quitting? Yeah, so do I. Keep showing up. Because that's what love does. And not just endurance, but what enables us to continue in endurance is hope. Paul says, you need hope. Well, what does hope mean? I think in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this: I've determined from now on to to recognize no one, quote unquote, at core of the flesh. And all Paul means by that is: look, when I see this person that I'm called to love, which is anyone. I'm not, I'm not called to put them in a bin so I can judge them. I'm called to see them as Christ sees them complete. Do you see? Like, I, I, oh, this is what I see. Someone made in the image of God. Someone gifted. Someone with tremendous capacity to bless and serve the world. How can I bring out the best in you? And it will always begin with love. Always. So, endurance and hope go especially well together in teaching us to love because... Hope enables me to see the other through the eyes of Christ, and endurance enables me to keep showing up. And when hope and endurance are woven, what happens is what Paul articulates here, together. We can live with one another in spite of differences, class differences, education differences, political differences, doctrinal differences. We live together because we keep showing up and loving. That's beautiful when my wife and I uh, hiked through the Alps on sabbatical some years ago, we met several parties of people who did that thing, hiked through the Alps for shorter periods than us, but they'd hike for a few days and there's there's people that have been doing it for decades. We saw these guys in their 50s, four guys, and they said every summer, we four guys, we've been doing this since we were 17 years old. And they're in their 50s now. Every summer, us four guys, we we do this. No matter what's going on, we're married now. We got jobs now. We got kids now. We do this thing. Like, we show up. And I got to tell you, I heard that, and I was jealous. I don't have three other guys that I've been with for 40 years. But that was yesterday. I can invest now. Do you see? I can keep showing up now. And so whatever is your past, it's not too late to begin investing seriously and keep showing up so that the word together will become meaningful for you in a uh, hyper-individualistic, hyper-mobile culture. We can keep showing up. So here's Christ. He meets the Samaritan woman at the well he illustrates that new life in Christ is available to all, including a woman with five failed marriages who's presently sexually active with a man to whom she's not married. Uh, she's confounding to the religious experts of the day. Here's Christ. He's, he's saying, regarding the centurion soldier who believed that Christ had the power to heal his son, he's saying to his disciples, predominantly only Jewish, truly I say to you, I haven't found anyone in Israel with this great of a faith. So here's Jesus affirming to Jews who hate Romans, a Roman. Here's Jesus saying to the Mennonites, oh, you want to see a saved guy? Look at this guy with a gun. Like, he's saved. Great faith. He confounds the pacifists. He confounds the moralists. He confounds the nationalists. He confounds the conservatives. He confounds the liberals. Why? Because no category confines Jesus. There's no bin big enough for Christ. Christ is the universe. And if Christ is a universe and we're all in that bin, then let's love one another. That's what Jesus is saying. So uh, we're going to close with an invitation to response. It was actually the response in last week's sermon, but since you didn't have the chance to respond, you have a chance this week. Um, I have begun a meditation practice in my life this, this season of praying every day in the morning, quietly. And part of that meditation practice includes intercessory prayer. And by intercessory prayer, this is what I mean. I'm allowing God to bring into my mind uh, what I call the Rolodex of my mind, certain people. So whoever God brings to mind, if you're under 40, think contact list, not Rolodex, but it's all the same thing. Um, God brings to my mind certain people. And I just pray a blessing on on that person. And it's super touching on Sundays to stand up here and go, that's right, Bruce, I prayed for you this week. Mike, I prayed for you this week. God brought you into the Rolodex of my mind. Abby, I prayed for you this week. Do you see? Just allow God to do this. Here's what I've discovered when I allow God to bring people to the Rolodex of my mind, every day God brings into that Rolodex someone who's super annoying to me. (laughs) Like that I would never want to pray for. And then I pray for that person. And I have to say to you, here's what I've discovered. Um, I have a watch that monitors my heart rate. (laughs) And when when I pray for that person that's annoying... My heart rate goes down. My stress level dissipates. When I can cross over from anger to love, I'm now living in alignment with the person God's made me to be. Is it counterintuitive? Absolutely. But does God want us to do that? Yes. So I invited people at the 8 a.m. service to just come up here and write the name of the person that God brings to mind who's annoying to you. Who's your Samaritan? Who's your your person that you don't even think could ever have faith or the person that has hurt you? Would you write their name and pray that God would bless them this morning? Don't write their last name, please. Just their first name. Just an initial if that's all you could do. It's fine. Guy came up to me after the first service. He said, I haven't spoken to my brother in a long, long time. And I came up. I, I looked at my watch. My heart rate, he said, was X. I came up, I prayed my heart rate was down. And he said, why do we fight the life for which we're created? So as God brings someone to mind, I'm going to invite you to come and respond so that we can pray with you and rejoice that we see visibly that we are a people committed to crossing divides and loving unconditionally. Jesus, meet us here in response as we give this time to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. amen.